13 through 17 on page 848. Paying taxes to Caesar, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness is on the inscription? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. It is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. You're all doing well. Thank you once again for allowing me to come up and preach God's word. Let's go, Lord, once again in prayer as we hear his word. Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, you've not kept yourself hidden, that you have revealed yourself to us in the pages of scripture, revealed yourself to us in your word. And Father, I need your help as we look at this passage and discuss politics and taxes and all things come with it. And, and I just pray, Father, that I remain true to your text and that when I speak the truth of your word comes out, please help us, Lord. May your gospel be proclaimed with boldness and receive with gladness. And in your son's name we pray, amen. Well, thank you again for coming. Uh, we are in the 12th chapter of the gospel according to Mark. Mark has chronicled the ministry of Jesus Christ. And Mark, in writing this gospel, has answered the question, who is Jesus? And Mark testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. God has promised to send one who will uh, deliver and restore Israel and make all things new again. And Mark proclaims that Jesus is the promised divine king in the line of David as prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus' ministry lasted only about three years. And throughout Jesus' three years of ministry, he has consistently demonstrated that he is the Son of God. He has proven himself to be God in the flesh. And he has shown us he is God the Son in three ways. First, by demonstrating total authority. Jesus displayed his total authority over sickness, disease, demons, death, and even nature. Jesus showed us who God is in the power that he wields, from healing people, authority over demons, controlling the wind and the water. He has complete authority over nature. He even walked in water as though he's walking on a sidewalk. And Jesus... Secondly, Jesus had compassion authority. Jesus shows us who God is in his compassion and mercy. We see how gentle he was with the people, interacting with them, touching them, healing them. He healed blindness, lameness, leprosy, even deafness. He dined with them, fed them, and more importantly, forgave them. Remember, only God has the authority to forgive Third, Jesus demonstrated truthful authority. 
We see that Jesus is, is the Son of God in, the, in his perfect preaching and proclamation of God's word. Jesus always spoke the truth about everything, whether it be about mankind or sin or kingdom of God or salvation. In every way, in everything, he spoke truth, and he did it with authority. But almost as soon as Jesus started his ministry, he was hounded and harassed by the religious leaders, the Pharisees, scribes, the Sadducees, harassed by the keepers of God's word, harassed by keepers of the law, harassed by the overseers and shepherds of the people and the nation of Israel, by the very ones looking for the promised king on the line of David. Jesus was a threat to the religious leaders. But why was Jesus a threat to the religious leaders? Well, first, could be jealousy. Jesus attracted multitudes, people clinging to his every word, wanting to be close to him. Pharisees, on the other hand, looked upon the common people with contempt. The Pharisees only saw the people sin. The Pharisees treated people with a spirit of disdain. Pharisees would have never dined with such people, yet Jesus willingly dined with them, Jesus interacted with them, he taught them, he had compassion for them, and loved them. Pharisees couldn't stand seeing the common folk loving and cheering Jesus. They grumbled, this man receives sinners and eats with them. But the people said Jesus taught them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Religious leaders were jealous of Jesus. Second reason, exposure. Jesus constantly exposed their hypocrisy. Before Jesus arrived, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes were honored. They sat the highest places in synagogue. They were honored and celebrated for their virtue. But Jesus exposed their virtue as being a pretense. It was all external. It was all a show. And later on this week, Jesus will tell the people regarding the religious leaders that they preach but do not practice. And Jesus will actually tell them to their face that they're like whitewashed tombs. They appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. And Jesus will tell them they appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus exposed their hypocrisy. And third reason, fear. Not fear of God's judgment. Religious, leader, religious leaders feared losing their power and authority. Israel was under Roman rule. There were numerous revolts by various Jews against Rome, and each one was crushed by Rome. And many believed the Messiah would come as a conquering king that would come to overthrow Rome. And some people viewed Jesus as the Messiah, and the religious leaders saw the multitudes following Jesus, so the religious lead leaders feared an insurrection was about to occur. Now, at the time of our passage, Passover is coming in a few days, and people were coming from all over Israel, that meant multitude, multitudes more, would hear Jesus teach and preach and possibly join in the imagined insurrection. So they feared Rome would send additional troops to Israel and once again squash it, only this time religious leaders feared Rome would dissolve whatever power and authority they had. And because of this fear, they felt the pressure to stop Jesus. Jesus is the enemy of everything they teach. So religious leaders had, had been seen 
uh, following Jesus and spying on him. Why? Well, it's not to gain insight into his teaching or to be convinced of his deity. The sole purpose is to destroy him. And now we have entered the final week of Jesus' life here on earth. The atmosphere in Jerusalem is getting tense. Passover is coming in the next few days. The friction between Jesus and the religious leaders is getting hotter. And Jesus begins the week by entering triumphantly into Jerusalem. And he didn't ride into town as a conquering hero. He rode into town humbly on the colt of a donkey. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the people treated him like a king. Many spread their, their cloaks on the road before him. Others spread leafy branches. And people were shouting, Hosanna, which in Hebrew means pray, save us. Hosanna's thanks and adoration and praise aimed at God, and they're yelling, Hosanna. And where does Jesus go first when he enters Jerusalem? To the governor? To seats of power? No. He goes to the temple. See, many people expect the Messiah to come in and overthrow Rome and to come and free Israel from an oppressive, pagan, idolatrous regime that is Rome. But that's not what he came to do, at least not this time. He didn't go to the centers of power. He didn't go to the governor. He didn't go to King Herod. He went to the temple. He went to his father's house. Jesus entered the temple. Now, entering the temple on his triumphant arrival, he looks around. He scans the scene. And then, due to the late hour, he goes to Bethany. Now, on day two of the final week, Jesus returns to Jerusalem and goes back to the temple. This time, Jesus cleanses the temple. He chases the money changers out. Now, can you imagine the power and authority of one man, one man overthrowing tables, scattering money about, chasing out birds and animals being sold for sacrifices, driving the thieves out of the temple, and preventing anyone from carrying anything through the temple? Can you imagine the chaos? And Jesus then declared the temple to be his house. And he says he shall call it, it shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. Then he began to teach. And he taught the rest of the day, and all the people were astonished, because he taught as one who had authority. Now the religious leaders were none too pleased. Jesus riding into Jerusalem, entering the temple, with the power and authority of a king upending the business, religious leaders sought even more to destroy him. But they could not arrest him. They could not kill him because they're afraid of the people. The next day, Jesus again came to the temple and began teaching. Now you can imagine the mess that was in the temple after Jesus upended it. And the religious leaders decided to challenge Jesus' authority. But they didn't get anywhere with him. They didn't get anywhere. And after getting nowhere with Jesus, Jesus then told them a parable about the owner of a vineyard. And his owner ran out of the vineyard to vine growers to take care of it. And the short story is, uh, when it was harvest time, the owner of the vineyard sent some servants to, to gather what was due to him. And every servant the owner sent was either brutalized or murdered. Finally, the owner sends his son, thinking they will respect him. But they kill his son. And Jesus asked, what will the owner do? 
Answering his own question, he says he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, Jesus' parable is a synopsis of the history of Israel. Vineyard represents in Israel, the vineyard of God. God assigns stewards to the vineyard, of the vineyard to oversee it. The stewards kill the prophets that God sent to them. Now, God has sent his son, and they will kill him. At the end of this week, Jesus will be hanging, naked, whipped, beaten to a bloody pulp, a wooden Roman cross. The parable concludes with the owner coming and destroying the tenants and giving the vineyard to others. Now, the massive crowd, including the religious leaders, heard that story. They all know what it means. They all know that the son will be killed. Well, the religious leaders know Jesus was speaking about them. So the religious leaders' choice is to either repent and believe in Jesus or get rid of him. And despite hearing Jesus preaching repentance and believing in him, despite everything Jesus did, all the miracles, all the things he taught, despite the religious leaders knowing that Jesus knows what they're planning, despite knowing that doom awaits them, despite the warning that their power and authority will be stripped away and given to others, religious leaders chose the latter. Get rid of them. And they will therefore be added to the long list of murderers of the prophets of God. So religious leaders go away and devise a plan. As we dive into our passage, we're going to see five points of the passage. First one is a plan comes together. That plan includes a trap. So the second point will be we'll see the nature of the trap. Then we'll see the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. We'll see the response of Jesus. Then we'll take a look to see how this applies to us. So we will see the plan, trap, hypocrisy, response, and then application. So religious leaders... They go away and devise a plan. Now, there's a group of Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes that form what's called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a supreme or ruling council of 71, one of which is the high priest. And throughout Jesus' ministry, the rulers conspired all kinds of evil against him. And this week, they're going to send one group after another to ask Jesus gotcha questions. So they want to try to get Jesus to incriminate himself. Why do they want to do that? So they can get rid of him. They couldn't have Jesus arrested or killed because they feared the people. The people would have turned on them and killed them. So they devised a plan. There will be three waves to this plan. And today we're going to look at the first wave. Look at Mark 12, 13. It says, And they, that's the Sanhedrin, sent to him some Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, the first wave of the plan was to send Pharisees and some Herodians to ask Jesus a political question to trap him in his words. And the word Mark used for trap means to take by hunting. It involves a violent pursuit. And, and he pictured hunting for a wild animal by digging a pit and putting spikes at the bottom of it. And then you want to lure this animal into the pit so it falls in and pales itself. This is how nasty and insidious this plan is. 
to get rid of Jesus. And what is fascinating are the two groups that joined forces to carry out this plan. We have the Pharisees and Herodians. I think we're all somewhat familiar with the Pharisees, but who are the Herodians? Well, Mark introduces us to the Herodians in chapter 3. In chapter 3, Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and Pharisees viewed that as a violation of God's law. We'll see in Mark 3, 6, it says that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. As you can see, they've been planning this for some time, and now it's coming to a head. It's it's reached uh, a crisis point now. As I said, this is quite fascinating, because the Pharisees and Herodians are two groups that coexisted in Israel and did not like each other. They did not agree theologically or politically. The Pharisees were the most religious. They taught strict observance of Mosaic law. Herodians, not so much. The Pharisees opposed and rejected all Roman rule and authority, but they were pragmatic and were willing to make the best of the Roman occupation. Now, they saw occupation as a temporary thing, for they had a strong belief in the coming of the Messiah. This Messiah would save Israel and restore the kingdom of David. The Pharisees knew the great king was coming, and they believed the king would overthrow Rome. It's just that they wanted a Messiah of their liking, a Messiah that suits them. The Pharisees saw no messianic qualities in Jesus. They thought he was not messianic material. He had no money. He had no army. He goes against their teachings. His lifestyle is a mess. He blasphemes God, eats with sinners, and desecrates the Sabbath. Now, the Herodians also wanted political independence from Rome for Israel. However, the Herodians placed their hope in the house of Herod. The house of Herod had converted to the Jewish faith. They were related to Israel, and the Jews preferred Herod over the hated Romans. But the Herodians wished to restore a member of the Herodian dynasty to the throne in Judea. Remember, this Herod the Great that built the temple that they were currently in, is the current Herod, Herod Antipas, that beheaded John the Baptist and the one Jesus insulted by referring to him as a fox. And Herod Antipas was, was placed in power by Caesar Augustus. Now, the Herodians already have a Messiah and don't need another. The Herodians also feared that Jesus would lead a revolt, which would result in the bloody end of the reign of Herod. So these two groups did not like each other. There's no love lost between the Pharisees and the Herodians. But despite their differences, they found a common cause, the destruction of Jesus. Pharisees want to get rid of Jesus because of this theology, but the Romans could not have cared less about that. So they attempted to assassinate him politically. The Rhodians just want to get rid of what they perceive to be a threat to them. So the Sanhedrin sent out the Pharisees along with the hated Herodians to trap Jesus. And the plan is to push Jesus into a corner by asking a political question, to which there is no good answer. But before they get to the question, religious leaders compliment Jesus. They use flattery. This is all part of the plan. And we see this first part of verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the word of God. So the religious leaders start off with flattery. And why? Well, as one person put it, 
Seems the nastiest questions frequently begin with the kindest introductions. Religious leaders are trying to distract Jesus and catch him off guard, prey upon his pride, pump him up so that he will answer incorrectly and, and, and to which he will either bring down his ministry with the people or say something negative about Rome and get Rome to take care of him. That's their plan. Flattery has another purpose. And that was to fool the people into thinking they're with the people. We're only interested in learning from Jesus too. We're, we're just like you. You see their flattery? In their flattery, they were seeing, saying that Jesus is a man of integrity. They're saying Jesus will not be swayed by the truth because of concerns people may find it unpopular. They're saying he will always speak the truth. And they were, of course, saying these things with total, complete hypocrisy. They didn't believe it. And despite themselves, they're accurately speaking truths about Jesus' character. And they really believe these things, then why don't they repent and believe in him? Everything religious leaders said is true. If the religious leaders truly believe what they said, they would have stopped right there and become his disciples. But they continue. They devise a plan to trap Jesus. And here is the nature of the trap. Last part of verse 14, it says, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They follow up with a second question, a yes or no question. Should we pay them or should we not? Well, what is it, Jesus? Yes or no? Should we pay taxes or not? Don't you just love yes or no questions? Rarely is an answer ever that simple. You know, demanding a yes or no question or response eliminates any nuance to your answer. A yes or no question is aggressive. It does not allow opportunity to express oneself fully. You don't know the presuppositions behind the question. It means that the actual question is lurking somewhere. And a yes or no answer could result in you answering something incorrectly to a question you did not even know you were being asked. Say yes. Oh, well, then you believe that. No, no. <laughs> so the religious leaders knew this and could not wait to spring the trap. They could not wait to see Jesus fall in and come impaled on the spikes. So this question about paying taxes presents a bit of a dilemma if restricted to a yes or no answer. If Jesus answers yes, then he's lost the people. His authority will be undermined. The tax was forced upon the people by the Roman authorities. And the tax represented, the, the Jews resented paying the tax because it was symbolic of, of their ultimate submission to Rome. What was this money going to be used for? People did not want to support a wicked pagan government. Faithful Jews do not pay this tax. In 6 AD, there's a man named Judas the Galilean, and he started a revolt against the tax. He believed it amounted to slavery. The Romans killed Judas and his followers. But would Jesus betray his Galilean background by suggesting the tax should be paid? Would Jesus be shown as the sympathizer to a foreign power oppressing God's people? See, the Pharisees oppressed the tax as well. However, they were unable to change the situation. They did not have the power. The Herodians, on the other hand, favored paying the tax. 
the Herodians were vassal states subordinate to Rome. And if Jesus answers no, then members of the Herodians would be quick to run to the governor and report that Jesus is another Judas of Galilean that has risen up and is leading another insurrection, telling people not to pay taxes. And the Pharisees and Herodians were hoping the same end to Jesus that occurred to Judas of Galilean. They're hoping Rome would come and crush him. So we see the plan. We see the trap. Now let's look at the hypocrisy. Verse 15 says, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? See, Jesus sees through their flattery. He's not fooled. They spoke truth about Jesus, but didn't believe their own words. Must have pained the Pharisees to say them. They just leave try to appear sincere and ask a sincere question. They, they don't really care about taxes. They didn't even care about the people. They're only interested, they're only pretending to be like the people, to, and they're only concerned to, with preserving their power and influence. Didn't want to submit to the authority of Jesus. And Jesus knows they want to trap him and undermine him. They want to undermine his authority and destroy him. They're trying to cast Jesus as someone who is untrustworthy. But Jesus has shown time and time again that he is trustworthy. Pharisees have tossed away all their integrity through their hypocrisy. Destroy the one who has integrity. Pharisees have shown themselves to be untrustworthy. Destroy the one who is trustworthy. Now, and I don't know Jesus' temperament when asking, why do you put me to the test? I mean, sometimes I, I read it thinking, he, he was scoffing a bit. You want to try this again since it worked so well for you in the past? But maybe that just reveals my sin. Or maybe there's exasperation. You follow me around, spying on me. You've seen what I can do. You've heard what I've taught. You said you know me and how I am. You say I'm true. I truly teach the ways of God. And yet you still don't believe. You still want to test me. Again, maybe I'm revealing my sin. Maybe Jesus is showing compassion to his enemies. And compassion is more in line with Jesus' character. Jesus is giving them one more time, to, one more chance to repent and believe in him. One more chance to reconsider what they are doing. How many chances did Jesus give you? How many chances has Jesus given you so far? See, at one point in our lives, we were all like the Pharisees. I mean, at one point, we had to repent and believe in Jesus. And I don't know how many times I heard and ignored the gospel. See, I grew up believing in God. I grew up believing Jesus was the Son of God. But I can think of a time where I actually resisted the gospel. I was just like the Pharisees, a hypocrite. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, that he died on, my, on, the sins for my, on the cross for my sins and rose again. I still believed my goodness was going to get me to heaven. I was a hypocrite. I had the head knowledge, but it hadn't penetrated my heart. <clears throat> when confronted with the fact that my do-goodisms were worthless, when confronted with the fact that my being a good person, whatever that even means, will not get me to heaven? I thought, that cannot be. No way. I don't believe it. I say, Jesus is nice, but in all, but not enough. I still had to do it myself. 
Thank God, sometime after that, while reading Scripture, and Gospel according to Mark was part of the Scripture I read, as was the Gospel according to Matthew, and according to Luke, and according to John, the Holy Spirit revealed to me that Jesus is God in the flesh. I came to believe. And Jesus once more gave me a chance to repent, and praise God, I repented and believed in him. And at one point, if you believe, you came to an agreement that Jesus is God in the flesh. And we agreed that we were not good enough and need a Savior, someone to save us from our sins. I mean, truly and totally save us, wash us clean. And we repented and believed in Jesus. Needless to say, the Pharisees do not repent, and the scene continues. So the trap is set. Jesus answers no. The Herodians report him to the governor as an insurrectionist. Jesus answers yes. The Pharisees can triumphantly expose him as a traitor uh, to the Jewish cause. So we've seen the plan, the trap, hypocrisy. Jesus doesn't panic. Jesus is in complete control. He controls the winds and the seas. He he controls the religious leaders. I mean, he's in control of when they will send him to the cross. He understands the seriousness of his position. But Jesus was not going to fall into their trap. He recognized their hypocrisy in the question. So what was Jesus' response to religious leaders? Flattering speech designed to trap him and undermine his ministry and authority. Well, Jesus says, bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. Now, the denarius was a coin Rome required for payment of a tax. Obviously, Jesus did not have one. Remember, this Messiah has no money. However, someone was able to produce one. Jesus then asked, whose likeness and inscription is this? He said to him, Caesar's. Now, Supposedly, the Jews hated these coins because only emperors had the power and authority to to mint coins of silver and gold, and those coins had the image of the emperor on the front side of the coin. Now, assuming it was minted by Tiberius Caesar, the front of the coin would say, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And these coins have been found. They exist. They're in museums. You can find pictures of them on the internet machine. But to the Romans, Augustus was a god. Tiberius was the son of a god. And the other side of the coin would have a picture of Tiberius's mother, Livia. The inscription was said, Pontifus Maximus, which means chief high priest. And you can see the problem the Jews would have with this. So Augustus minute songs identified himself as a god. Tiberius designated himself son of the divine and as high priest. So to the Jewish mind, these coins were little idols. However, there does not seem to be any evidence of a strong objection to looking at or handling them. Furthermore, the quick response to Jesus' question suggests these coins were widely known. So the Pharisees were probably thinking, since Jesus claimed to be God, he must have seen these coins as blasphemy. And the Pharisees would expect Jesus to say they should have nothing to do with this blasphemous, idolatrous, pagan culture. He shouldn't give them anything. Pharisees expected Jesus to say the law of God forbids the paying of taxes of any type of currency for such an evil government. So Jesus responds. Render to Caesar 
the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They marvel because Jesus' answer is quite profound. I mean, it would have caused them to pause and think about what Jesus said. Because Jesus always spoke with wisdom. And Jesus alluded to this trap. He wasn't going to be boxed in by a yes or no answer. Religious leaders certainly were not looking for this answer. They're not expecting it. And once again, Jesus confounds them. But what is Jesus saying? Jesus says that Caesar has a legitimate claim. And so does God. Give what is rightfully due to both. Render means give. Give what is rightfully due to both. And Jesus acknowledged the God-given role of government. And governments, even Rome, as wicked as they may have been, was instituted by God. And Jesus authoritatively proclaims that Caesar has a place. Now, the New Testament expands on this theme in Romans 13, 1 to 2, where it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, pretty much means that rebelling against the government is akin to rebelling against God. And I will admit that sometimes I feel like revolting over the things I see. And I'm sure I'm not the only one here that felt that way. But watch yourself. Watch yourself. Maybe rebelling against God. The Jews, in actuality, accepted the rule of Caesar and of Rome. They participated in the Roman economy. They shared in the wealth of Rome. They enjoyed peace, safety, and prosperity. They therefore should participate in some of the cost. Since Roman coins are commonly used for payment in Israel, that implicitly means they acknowledge Roman authority and therefore an obligation to pay taxes. Therefore, the, actually, the Pharisees actually knew the answer to their own question. And Jesus knew that. He knows their heart. He knows why they're asking him the question. And since Caesar's image and inscription were on the coins, they were his coins. According to Roman law, they belonged to him. Jesus was telling them, this is Caesar's coin. Use it to pay Caesar's tax. He wants them back, give it to him. Give what belongs to Caesar back to Caesar. But Jesus immediately says to render to God the things that are God's. Caesar's image is stamped on the coins. Where is God's image stamped? Whose image is stamped on you? God's. Back in Genesis 1.26, says, Then God said, Let us make man our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. He made you. You belong to him. You bear his image. Therefore, give to God what is God's. What are we to give to God? Everything. Yourself, your mind, your everything. Obedience. Romans 12, 1 to 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what, it, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God created you in his image, therefore you belong to him. God owns, owns you. You owe him. Give yourself to him. And how do we do that? By recognizing Jesus, his son, as the Messiah and submitting to him. See, Jesus, in his answer, once again, was appealing to the religious leaders to recognize them as the Messiah sent by God. Now, if you remember the parable of the vineyard, what did the tenants not do? They did not give to the owner what was due him. And it's amazing to me how all this ties together. It, it, it's almost like Jesus knew they were going to ask him this question and answered it before they asked him. The Jews have accepted the Roman government, but have rejected the Christ who came to love his people. They rarely give to man what is owed them, but have no care to give to God the glory due to him. And Jesus responded to the question by demanding they give ultimate devotion to the God they claim to worship. So what does this mean for us? Remember, how did Jesus arrive in Jerusalem? On the colt of a donkey, came humbly. What did Jesus come to do? I'll look back at Mark 10, 33-34, as Mark answers that question too, as well. And for the third time, he tells his disciples, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus came to die for his people. In a couple days from this event in the final week, Jesus will be hanging from a wooden cross, be crucified. He died and was buried. And after three days, he rose from the dead, just as he said he would. So this is last week, but he's coming back. And when he does, he's coming back to vanquish his enemies. Then he'll come back as that conquering king. And he will bring all governments into subjection to him. So what that means is that Christians are citizens of two worlds. We're here submitting to whatever government God has placed us under. But as Paul said, we're not to conform to this world. We are also citizens of the kingdom of God. And we as Christians have an obligation to both. So what are our obligations? Do we have to pay taxes? Well, Jesus in a very profound way says, yes, we do. We have a responsibility to be good citizens, and that includes paying taxes. Paul says in Romans 13, 7 to 8, he says, for because of this you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God. So pay the all was owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, he says, Be subject to the Lord's sake for every institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme 
Our two governors is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. God has established governments, and we must be subject to them. That means pay your taxes. Does that mean they should be blindly followed? No. Governments are imperfect. They're made up of fallen people. The people that governments govern are fallen. All governments are imperfect. But first of all, our obligation always is to be a good citizen. God has been extremely gracious to us in a country such as ours. Is it perfect? No. Does our government support wicked things with the taxes it raises? Yes. And despite that, we have the obligation to pay taxes because we, as were the Jews, are not responsible for how that money is spent. But we should thank God that we have the right to peacefully persuade our government not to support such wicked things. We can always do that. And will it always be this way? Only God knows. I mean, God raises up nations and governments and tears them down. They serve his purpose and for his glory. And there are obligations to the state that do not infringe upon the rights of God. Uh, remember, the New Testament was written in a time where Christians were killed by the governments for their faith. And there may come a time when the choice is to, be, to obey God rather than man. And sometimes civil disobedience is necessary. If the government tells you to explicitly disobey Jesus, especially when it comes to preaching the gospel, then civil disobedience is warranted. For you remember back in Acts 5, 27 to 29, it says, And they brought to them, that's them as the apostles, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Jesus and the, the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. Yet, yes, there may come a time when you, uh, we must oppose the command of the government. That may occur. And at that point, Lord willing, you may receive the gift, spiritual gift of martyrdom for Christ. But we have another obligation. Pray for our leaders. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's read that. God desires people to be saved. The mission of the church is to proclaim the, church, the truth of God's word. And we as Christians are obligated to pray for our leaders, whether we voted for them or not, whether we agree with them or not. Bear in mind, our leaders bear God's stamp as well. Now, do you see why we need to pray for our leaders? 
because praying for them makes practical sense. Our leaders can affect the conditions in which we live. And when our leaders are obeying the will of God, that makes it easier to live quiet and peaceful lives in all goodness and holiness. So we pray for our leaders with the blessing of the church in mind. We pray for them so that we may need a peaceful and quiet life. We pray for them so we as the church will be godly and dignified in every way. Yes, we pray for God to tear down tyrannical government so that people will be saved and the church may flourish. As imperfect and immoral as our government may be, we have responsibility to the state. Be a good citizen, pray for everyone, including our leaders. But we have a higher responsibility to God. There is no dilemma between church and state. It's not a matter of preferring Herod over Caesar. It's not a matter of preferring one political party over another. It is a matter of, are you for or against Christ? The ultimate question is not whether one should pay taxes to an evil government or not. It's not whether one is for, for or against the emperor, but whether one is for or against the Christ. Do you stand with the emperor, or do you stand with God's anointed one? That is the question. Therefore, you must devote yourself to Jesus, who died for your hypocrisy. It was the religious leaders hypocrisy that killed Jesus, that sent him to the cross. But Jesus died for our hypocrisy. If you not come to believe in Jesus, if you not submit it to his authority, I will say this as plainly as I can. Jesus is God in the flesh who came to save us from our sins. He did that by dying on a wooden Roman cross. He took God's punishment in our place as he took the punishment that we deserve in our place. We deserve God's punishment. Jesus is real. Jesus is true. Jesus is trustworthy. You can trust him. Jesus is good all the time. You are good none of the time. I'm good none of the time. You need Jesus' goodness. And Jesus will give you his goodness. In fact, Jesus' goodness is the only goodness that God the Father will accept. You need his goodness. To get his goodness, repent and believe in him, and he will give you his goodness. Jesus gives us eternal life because he rose from the dead. Jesus put death to death. Jesus rose, and all who believe will also rise. So who are you waiting for? What more do you need to believe? If you have questions and are unsure of things, ask, but please don't, don't use your questions as reasons not to believe. Don't use them as excuses like the religious leaders were doing. Ask questions to gain understanding. There's nowhere else to go. As I pointed out earlier, Jesus, just in this episode, gave the religious leaders a few chances to repent and believe. And the, the religious leaders eventually ran out of chances. But if you don't believe, this is your chance. You're hearing the gospel. Don't ignore it. Don't resist it. This could be the last chance God gives you. Now, as I said, Jesus is uh, coming back, and we await the day of Jesus' return. Jesus currently reigns over all the nations. 
They serve at his behest. But when he returns, he will reign explicitly over all nations. No more tranquil powers, no more hypocritical leadership. We'll bask in the glory of a loving and compassionate God. But until that day comes, we must meet our obligations. Give to Caesar what belongs to him. But more importantly, we must give ourselves fully to the Lord. Give to God what belongs to him. We must submit ourselves to the authority of Christ Jesus. And what is the consequence of not being obedient to Christ? Remember what the owner of the vineyard will do? He'll destroy them. Therefore, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the complete forgiveness of all your sins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you and confess to you our sins. We confess to you that, yes, we have been hypocrites. We thank you for your son Jesus, how he has willingly gone to the cross, taking our sins upon him, and then dying there, receiving the punishment that we deserve. We pray, Father, that this gospel will be received with gladness and that people that don't know you, that today will be the day of salvation. We thank you, we praise you, and it's in your beautiful son's name we pray.